Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, Membership Feed, Episode 3, The Aztec Triple Alliance. We saw last week the Aztecs complete their migration from Aztlan to the fringes of the Valley of Mexico. We then watched them slowly work their way into the remnants of the Toltec aristocracy, gain respectability, and then defeat the Tepaneca to become rulers of the Valley. Now, after I put out episode 2, listener Mike raised a very good point on Twitter. I've been talking a lot about the Valley of Mexico, but I haven't commented on its size. I've been talking about it a lot, but it wasn't huge. Mexico is a pretty big country, the 14th largest in the world. It's eight times bigger than the UK. It shares a 2,000-mile land border in the north with the United States, and it's also about 2,000 miles in length. Pretty big. Now, the Valley of Mexico, it's located in the heart of the country in a mountain range. It's about 50 miles north to south and 20 miles across. If you'll allow me to conduct some very rough maths, it's less than 0.2% of Mexico. But size doesn't always matter. The Valley of Mexico was culturally significant. It was the home of at least two great civilizations of the pre-Columbian Americas, Teotihuacan and the Tolteca. It was also becoming home to a third, the Aztecs. It was heavily populated. I spoke in episode one about the size of Teotihuacan. It had good farmland. The example I would use to explain it in a more familiar context would be like Athens and Attica in the ancient Mediterranean. It was geographically small, but it was good land in a good location with significant gravitas attached. There is a well-known saying to scholars of ancient Greece when comparing Sparta and Athens that people in the future would overestimate the influence of Athens based on what it physically left behind, and that they would underestimate Sparta. So, while it may not seem that important that the Aztecs had managed to gain control of the valley, it was. This is where we pick things up in 1428. The Aztecs, led by its Coatl as part of the Triple Alliance with Texcoco and Tlacopan, began a great expansion project. This point needs to be made clear. The Aztecs were not in a position to dominate the valley by themselves, and the effort to overthrow the Tepaneca could only be done through an alliance network, the most important of which was Texcoco. And so, after the Tepaneca were defeated, this triple alliance was solidified. For example, while its coatl took the title of ruler of Kulwa, the leader of Texcoco, Neza Walcoitl, gained the title ruler of Alcolwa, and the third ruler in Tlacopan, while of less importance, was known as the ruler of the Tepaneca. You'll recall how the Tepaneca had married their way into controlling Tlacopan last time, so that sort of makes sense. This was necessary. It was simply impossible for a small city-state to rule on its own. Even the previous Toltec Empire had been ruled by a group of cities, Tula, Otompan, and Kulwakan. 
and it seems that the empire entered its decline following Tula's collapse. Yet, once this happened, Kulwakan ascended to a position of power within the valley through a series of alliances, eventually with Kuatli-Chan and the Tepaneka capital of Azkapotalsko. If you'll allow me to quote the Aztec Empire by Nigel Davis for a moment, quote, In the Aztec Triple Alliance, more a recreation than an invention, Tenochtitlan, capital of the Kulwa Mexicas, assumed the role of Kulwakan. Tepanek Tacuba took the place of Tepanek as Capotasco, and Teshkako replaced Coatlichan as the leading Alcolwa power. End quote. I should note, to avoid confusion, that Tacuba is an alternative name for Tlacopan. The two are the same city. The first task of the Triple Alliance was securing their own dominion. Nezawalcoitl was in a precarious position in Teshkako and couldn't actually rule his city. It took three years of work before he and its Coatl were able to reinstate him. The next task which took up most of its Coatl's reign was spent mopping up the conquests of the valley. While conquering land is all well and good, it isn't going to achieve very much if you can't rule it. Consolidation is an important step in empire building. While the Tepanek power centre had been destroyed, there were still holdouts. Itzcoatl found excuses to make war on these cities one by one. First there was Coyoacan. Itzcoatl claimed that the citizens of Coyoacan had molested and robbed Aztec women. He had to avenge them, and the city was conquered. Next was Xochimilco. This time, the Aztecs asked for wood and stone to construct a temple. To you and me, this may not seem like that much of an issue. A bit of stone and wood. It's not that much to ask for. Certainly when the Aztecs are asking for it. When the Aztecs want something... Generally, giving it to them is a good idea, because if you don't, they're just going to take it and probably kill you in the process. So, why would Chochimilco refuse the request? Well, in ancient Mesoamerica, there was deep symbolism behind asking for wood and stones to construct a temple. It represented demanding total submission. Chochimilco simply couldn't agree to this, so they were attacked, and they were conquered. This conquest took a slightly different process from the usual, though. What had happened with the Tepaneca capital and with Coyoacan was that land was seized. Most of it was kept by the rich, of course, with a bit given to the masses. However, when Xochimilco was conquered, there was not to be a sacking, and the city could keep its land. The subject peoples to Xochimilco were not so lucky, but it was designed to keep the city on favour. The Aztecs couldn't rule on fear alone. They needed some friends. The final campaign of Itzcoatl was against the city of Coatlawak. The Aztecs this time demanded that maidens from the noble families of the city travel to Tenochtitlan so that they could dance at a festival. This was insulting to Coatlawak, 
The nobility would not allow their daughters to be treated like playthings. This led to a particularly grand campaign for these early years, since Kutliwak was located in a lagoon, and so there was a naval element to this campaign. We have the following description in the Histories of the Indies of New Spain by Diego Duran. Quote, and when the canoes arrived, all the men of the army embarked, and passed an arm of the lagoon, which had no causeway nor other means of passing, and was fairly deep. And thus, as the Aztec army crossed, and jumped out onto the land of Cutlawak, the people of that place came out against them, all in canoes, and very well arrayed with their rich and colourful insignia, the canoes themselves being adorned with shields and richly hued feathers, with which the oarsmen were covered, and the fighting men were all very well armed and bedecked with feathers, white, red, yellow, blue, green, black, and every colour, all with different plumes on their heads and backs. Round their necks they wore many jewels of gold, set with stones, as well as bracelets of brilliant gold, and above their feet, anklets of gold, to complete the arms which they wore from head to foot. End quote. It was certainly very grand, and you will not be surprised to learn that the Aztecs were once again completely victorious. This takes us to the death of its coathal in the year 1440. The first of the great Aztec emperors. It was the work of its coathal that turned the Aztecs from a significant force in the Valley of Mexico to a major player throughout the whole of Mexico. Following the defeat of the Tepaneca and the creation of the Triple Alliance, Itzcoatl was able to secure the valley for the Aztecs and create a power base, which would be used in the future. He also began to creep out of the valley, making inroads into what is now the state of Guerrero. This is to the south of the valley, and while Itzcoatl did not make it as far as the Pacific, it was a sign of things to come. So, what happened next? First of all, a new monarch had to be chosen. The Aztecs, after all, were an elected monarchy. Diego Duran informs us that the election of the monarch had to come from one of the four councillors we discussed last time out, and the man chosen was Moctezuma. Known to history as Moctezuma I Ilwikamina, or Moctezuma the Elder, to distinguish him from Moctezuma II, who ruled when the Spanish arrived. Since that is a ways down the road, and I doubt we're going to get them confused, I'm just going to call him Moctezuma. We have a slight issue, though, with his relationship to its coathal, since our two major sources, Diego Duran and the Cronica Mexicoatl, by Don Fernando de Alvarado Tezazomoc, both describe Moctezuma as the cousin of its coathal. This doesn't really make sense and goes against most of what else is known about Moctezuma and his relationship with the Aztec royal family. It is thought that Moctezuma was Itzcoatl's nephew instead, that's the version modern histories go with, and that's the version I'll go with. That is the narrative up to the start of the reign of Moctezuma in 1440, which puts us at just over 12 minutes into the episode. That's a bit late for me to begin telling his story when I can do a proper job of that in the next episode, 
without a break partway through. But it is also rather short for an episode. So what we're going to do instead is just reflect a bit on the reign of its coattle and take an analytical approach to things. The most fundamental issue when dealing with what we've talked about today is the Nahuatl. For all its problems as a language, English has a very rich vocabulary. It often does, and indeed likes to, take a lot of words to get the point across, but it can almost always do it. English, even if it lacks a certain je ne sais quoi, has no qualms about stealing from other languages. Certain languages have one word which means many different things, and this causes problems when translating. Nahuatl is one of these languages. Its word for defeating someone and conquering them is the same. Pewa. Other languages do this too. Nike is used in this way in ancient Greek, but we have a lot more written evidence for the Greeks than the Aztecs, which means that if we have only an event referred to once with no real description of it, we can't really be sure of what exactly happened. A lot of our evidence for what the Aztecs were doing is just conquest lists. We have no way of knowing what form these victories took, such as if they involved annexation, the imposition of tribute, or a restoration of independence. There is a pretty big difference between these three, and if we can't distinguish between them, our ability to create a narrative, or even understand what happened, is severely compromised. For instance, the history of Diego Duran takes, in its 1967 edition, 125 pages to reach this point in our narrative, the reign of Moctezuma. It spends 40 of those talking about the conquests of the three cities we've dealt with today. But we're also told that the Tepaneca had conquered these cities 50 years previously, and that its coatl had already conquered the Tepaneca. So how does all this work? We have places which the Aztecs conquer multiple times, so this indicates a mistranslation where we're just dealing with defeats, because they can't all be conquests, but we have no idea which victories were full annexation, and which were just plain defeats. I just want you to be aware of the difficulties we have when dealing with this material, which is my job, after all. With that, we'll bring things to a close for this time out. We've explored the Triple Alliance of Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan in more detail, talking about why it was necessary, and we've covered its Coatl's conquests up to 1440, the ascension of Moctezuma to the throne, and we've talked about the dangers of the source material. I'll see you in two weeks, when we'll get into the reign of Moctezuma, when the Aztec Empire begins to really take shape. Thanks for listening.